Welcome to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. Enjoy today's message. May you experience the presence of our Father and may you grow deeper in your relationship with Him. encouraging just to see those roots and tomorrow evening as we're going to be praying again come and join us it's it's a part of who we've always been and a part of who we long to continue to be as a family that is birthed in prayer a couple of weeks ago i started a message and with a bit of a weird title and it didn't make sense at all i guess on the message that i spoke about because i spoke about samson and gym time, and maybe kind of you thought Samson was this big, strong guy, and he had to go to gym. Who was here for that message? Most of us. Some of you weren't. So just a quick recap. We looked at the life of Samson, and he was this guy who was called from birth. Jesus himself had appeared to his mother and said, Samson is going to be separated. He's a, a Levite, a Nazarite, which is a specific type of dedication to the Lord. And we looked at the fact that he had a calling from God that everybody around him knew. We saw that he was exceedingly gifted. The Holy Spirit came upon him in the most unique ways, in these powerful ways. And I think often when we think of Samson, we think of this big, strong guy. But it's clear from Scripture that he wasn't necessarily this big, strong guy. He didn't have the strength all of this time. It's when the Holy Spirit came upon him that the strength was incredibly upon him. And he did these amazing, powerful feats. He was highly favored. He would be in the desert thirsty and moaning to God and praying. God would just make a spring of water just bubble up next to him. And when he had needs, he could pray. And God answered these needs. He was this incredible setup for success. He was called. He was anointed. He was gifted. He was favored. He had position and authority. He had been given a, a title, a role, a job within Israel. He was the judge. They all recognized him as the leader of their people. And yet still at that moment in his life, we read this passage in Judges 16 verse 20, which to me remains one of the saddest passages in, in all of Scripture. Then she cried out, this woman who had been deceiving Samson. She said, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. When he woke up, he thought, I will do as before and I will shake myself free. But he didn't realize the Lord had left him. And that's sort of where we ended two weeks ago when we started speaking about this, this fact that there was this guy who was set up for every success in his life, and he came to a point where God was no longer with him. He came to this point in his life where he woke up and what had always been was no more. I mentioned, yes, that we're living in a New Testament environment. We have this promise from God that He will be with us always, even to the end of the age. But as we read this passage and as we look at the life of Samson, I think we also see that there are certain things which attract the presence of God to our lives. We started just touching on the idea that perhaps it's not so much calling and giftedness and anointing and position and all of those things which shape success in our lives. Perhaps it's something far deeper and far more personal. Character. Perhaps it's something that draws us a lot closer to the heart. And we're saying that kind of a, we've got a friend who helped us with appointments in previous years and he taught me this lesson. I love this when he said that in their company, they'd made a decision that they don't appoint people based on their CVs. In other words, based on their skill set. They appoint them based on their character. Yes, there is a basic proficiency that is needed. But for them as a company, they figure we can teach people skills. It's not within our mandate as a company to teach people character. What he said is we appoint people based on their CV, but we fire them based on their character. And so it's easier to take people of character and to train them to do the job than to take gifted people who don't have character. And those create harder and more difficult problems for them within their company environment. I also said that anyone, there's one, two married couples here that I see, two and a, one and a half married couples. Most of us aren't married, but 
being in ministry for a number of years, one of the things I've learned and I've seen is that when we do marriage counseling, when by the time normally when people come and sit across the table from me and Yaku sits across, or sits across the table from Yaku and they say, hey, listen, our marriage needs help. Normally, it's like if the marriage is a car driving up Chapman's Peak. You guys know Chapman's Peak near Cape Town? This beautiful, very scenic mountain pass, but this big cliff down the side. Normally, by the time they arrive at our desk, it's because the car is lying way at the bottom and they need a helicopter or something to hopefully try and pull this car out and maybe try and save something. So on one of our podcasts, we've got a whole podcast on relationships, which reminds me, I must probably put some more episodes on there again for you guys. If you haven't yet, go and listen to them. And one of the things we encourage you to do is rather get help earlier than later. If you see, hey, our car's a little shaky on this, and there's a cliff down the side, get somebody to check the wheel alignment and the tires then already. Don't wait until you're way down in the bottom. But what we find normally when people are down in the bottom, then the marriage is falling apart. Here's an unexpected surprise. It's normally not a marriage problem. It's very rarely there's a problem in the marriage. It is always, almost always, there is a problem with character. There is a problem in the person. There is a, or normally both. So I was praying in preparation. I told the guys beforehand as I was praying for, for today's message, one of the questions that just popped up in my heart while I was praying is, what kind of disciples are we making? For us as people being discipled, but also the people into whose lives we're investing, what is it that we are making them hungry for? Are we making people hungry for the presence of God and for gifting and anointing and knowledge and power, and signs, and wonders, and please don't misunderstand me. Make them hungry for that. Scripture says we should desire spiritual gifts. We must press into that. But are we making them most hungry for that? Or are we making them most hungry for character? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. This is one of those easy verses to remember because it's just 6, 7, 8. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verse 7 and 8 says, Do not waste time arguing over godless ideas and old wives' tales. And I remember a couple of years ago, I read that just sort of in passing, and it completely revolutionized my relationship with social media. Some of us need to hear that. Don't waste time arguing about godless ideas and old wives' tales. Instead, train yourself to be godly. Physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better. Promising benefits in this life and in the life to come. A couple of things about that that I want us to see. The first thing is just very quickly, it doesn't say um, instead let your pastor train you to be godly or let your YouTube videos train you to be godly or let the books you read train you to be godly or let your small group leader train you to be godly. No, it's your responsibility to train yourself to be godly. The second thing is, I, I wonder in church, and I say this as an indictment against myself as much as anybody else, is I wonder how much time we spend ministering into godliness and training people for godliness, allowing people to be trained towards godliness, and how much time we spend speaking into the external things, the signs and the wonders, making people hungry for giftedness and anointing and Stepping out and and all of those things are good. I'm not discounting. I'm not saying any of them are unimportant and should become less important. It's not what I'm saying tonight. But I just wonder how often perhaps we're going to read some passages that I'm guessing for most of us we may have read at times. We may even have heard preachers read them. But I, I hesitantly say that most of us probably haven't heard too many preachers slow down around these passages. And so I want us for a moment today to slow down around this idea of godliness. Godliness, most of us hopefully know that the New Testament is written in the word, is written in Greek. And the Greek word which is translated godliness is the word Eusebia. And one of the beautiful things about Eusebia as a word is there's some words in Scripture which are hard to translate because we only find them in Scripture. 
We don't really exactly know what the Greek means, or the Hebrew at times, like the word selah. No honest Hebrew scholar can tell you what the word selah really means. There are a couple of things we think it means, but no one really knows, and it's found throughout the Psalms. It's the only place we find it, so it's hard to figure out what does it actually mean. But Eusebia was used a lot in classical Greece. It was used, I'm going to just read here a little bit, it was used abundantly in Greek philosophy as well as in the New Testament. In other words, it was used widely within the Greek environment. There's many other writings that use the word, and that helps us to contextualize and understand exactly what the meaning means, or what the word means. It means to perform the actions appropriate to the gods. The word was used in classical Greece where it meant behaving as tradition dictates in one's social relationships and towards the gods. This is taken from Wikipedia, just a plain definition. This isn't a spiritual definition as such. This is just what the word means. One demonstrates Eusebia to the gods by performing the customary acts of respect. So Eusebia, godliness, is all about outward actions. In a Christian sense and um, in the book, just on the next slide, because I keep forgetting the title, The Practice of Godliness by Jerry Bridges. He sums this up so well for us in a Christian sense. He says, the New Testament word for godliness, Eusebia, in its original meaning, conveys the idea of a personal attitude towards God that results in actions that are pleasing to Him. And so then he puts this little one-liner in, which is so powerful. Godliness is devotion in action. And I want us to stand still there for a moment because if we miss this, we miss the whole idea of godliness. You see, godliness starts in devotion. Godliness starts in relationship. Godliness starts, as he says here, in a personal attitude toward God. Some of you are going to discover when you find someone and you fall in love, maybe you've had that moment, maybe you're married already, but if you're not married yet, this person, you, you fall in love. And you know one of the things that begins to happen when you fall in love with someone and when you learn to love someone, really deeply love them, is you want to find out what makes them tick, what they enjoy, what do they love. And then guess what? What do you do? You try as far as possible to do it. That's just a normal act of love, isn't it? So it's my wife's birthday tomorrow as an example. So send her a WhatsApp or message, phone her. She'll appreciate it. So my kids and I, this last week or two, we had our primary conversation whenever mom's not around is, what do you think mom would enjoy for her birthday? What would she love? And so yesterday we had a gap because one of the kids had a, birth, uh, had a party with their friend. So Janetta took the took the one child to the birthday party, and as they went out the door, the other two of us said, Nazar Gap. And we got in the car, and we drove to Brooklyn, and we went and bought a present. And we performed actions which we believe will be pleasing to her, not out of dead religion, not because it's the right thing to do, not because, oh, flip, it's my wife's birthday. I better buy her something again, otherwise I'm in trouble. No, it's her birthday. I get to do something which will be pleasing to her. And the gift is just one of those things. And so godliness carries that same idea. It started in devotion. It starts in love. So one of the first things, perhaps the first thing for us to grow in godliness, we have to grow in love. We have to have moments like this evening where we just spend time in His presence, where we just learn to love Him. And so this is the idea that it's not just, so it starts in devotion. One of the biggest lies, sadly, in modern church is that we must just love Jesus. And that's not a lie, but the way it is framed is a lie, because that's the same as me saying, I must just love my wife. Just as long as I love her in my heart, that's all that matters. She will disagree with you. I mustn't just love her with my heart. I must love her with my actions. My actions must demonstrate. I can't say I love her and then go and do a whole bunch of things which I know she hates. That just doesn't work. I can't then come back and say, oh, no, but I really love you. And then tomorrow I do and do the stuff that I know upsets her. That's not love. 
And so for us to truly grow in love to Christ, action has to flow. And that's where this idea of godliness comes from. That I've got this devotion, I've got this surrender. God, I really want to please you, not out of dead religion, not because I just want to do a bunch of acts so I can tick the boxes, because I really, really love you. And I want to be found well-pleasing to you. Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. It says, Paul's writing to this church, and he prays this really great prayer for them. I pray that your love will overflow more and more. That's a great prayer to pray for people. I pray that your love will overflow more and more, and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. This is an apostolic prayer. This is a great prayer. But then look what he says. For I want you to understand what really matters. I pray, I want you to grow in love. I want you to grow in understanding because I want you to know what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. So here is what really matters. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ, for this will bring much glory and praise to God. I wonder if before this message, before this verse even, if I passed a little paper around and I said, everyone write down on this paper what really matters in your faith. I wonder what we would have put there. I wonder how many of us would put what really matters is the fruit of my salvation. Righteous character produced in my life by Jesus Christ. You see, I think sometimes we see God, we think God is sitting up in heaven looking down on us and He wants to see a whole bunch of ministry activity. He wants us to see us um, praying for people and laying hands on people and sharing the gospel and giving food to the poor, doing all of these things. And there's an element of truth to that. What I think He really wants to see is the fruit of salvation, righteous character. That's produced by Jesus Christ. And the truth is that righteous character will be and will lead to change in the lives around us. That is our greatest ministry and our greatest testimony. You see, in the same way that marriages don't fail because of marital problems, they fail because of character problems. Ministries don't fail because of ministry problems. They fail because of character problems. I had to write a, a letter this week around some difficult issues we have to deal with. And as part of my homework, if you can call that, I had to go and see how, do these, how does the church write letters when leaders fail? And so I went and I googled a whole bunch of statements and I went and looked at sort of in the last 10 years, all of these church leaders that had failed, that had been disgraced, that had to step down from the international ministries that they'd led for years, for most of their lives, some of them. You know the crazy thing? Every single one of them, not one of them, let me phrase that, had to step down because they weren't anointed enough. Not one of them had to step down because they misinterpreted Scripture. Not one of them had to step down because of an inability to minister and to teach people the gospel. They all had to step down because they had failed in character. So Scripture says this is what matters. And so there are a couple of ways we can determine what does godliness look like in God's eyes. I think if we were to send out sort of a, a Google form posted somewhere on some Facebook group, everyone in Pretoria, for, answer five things. What is found? What is pleasing to God? I think we're going to get some interesting answers. And most of those answers are probably going to be, these are the things that are pleasing to me, and therefore they should be pleasing to God. And I love how, how Tim Keller addresses that. He says, if your God never disagrees with you, you are only worshiping an idolized version of yourself. If your God never disagrees with you, in other words, if everything I love, God loves, and everything God loves, I love, well, guess who's God? Me. The God that we serve, there are probably going to be some things that we're going to look at. And we God, I love this. And God's going to say, no, I love you, but I hate that. 
And there are going to be some things that God says, I love this and I'm going to look at that. And I'm like, God, really? <laughs> so there are a couple of ways in which we can determine what is godly. And the way not to do it is to go and think, what do I think is godly? I think that's a bad way to do it. The way to do it is to turn to the Scriptures and to study. We can either look at the life of Jesus because He came to demonstrate godliness to us. That's one way, and we do that hopefully regularly. I encourage you to do that. The other way is to look at the writings of the early New Testament church leaders, specifically Scripture. I am of the firm belief that a primary role of eldership, according to Scripture, is example. It's not, that, it's not that no way in Scripture does it tell us what elders must do. And I've read a whole bunch of books, and they all say this is what elders must do. And I'm like, but Scripture doesn't say that. So I don't know where you get it from. <laughs> it might be that's what the Holy Spirit's led you to do with your elders in your church, and that's amazing, and run with it. But Scripture just gives us like two or three headline words, like they must oversee. Now, my definition of oversee and your definition of oversee, it, it's probably different. What does it look like to oversee a church? It's going to look different in every environment. But what Scripture does say very clearly is who elders must be. It says very dimly what they must do. It says very clearly what they must be. And I believe because primarily before anything else, elders must be examples. They must demonstrate to people coming into the church, people growing in faith, this is what a Christian life looks like. In other words, they must be godly. And we get two lists of what are some of the characteristics that are important for elders. I think we can use them as a template for what godliness could look like and elements of godliness. And so I'm going to read them for us. The first one is in Titus. The second one is in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And they're very they're sort of parallel scriptures. There's a whole bunch of stuff that um, overlaps between them. The first one is in Titus chapter 1. I left you on the island of Crete. So it's Paul, this father in the faith, he's writing to this younger guy. His name is Titus, and he says to him, I left you on the island of Crete so you could complete our work there and appoint elders in each town as I instructed you. An elder must live a blameless life. He must be faithful to his wife, and his children must be believers who don't have a reputation for being wild or rebellious. A church leader is a manager of God's household, so he must live a blameless life. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. He must not be a heavy drinker, violent, or dishonest with money. Rather, he must enjoy having guests in his home, and he must love what is good. He must live wisely and be just. He must live a devout and disciplined life. He must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message he was taught, that he will be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they are wrong. Can I just throw in here as well? Our goal in lives, in our lives, should not be to become a church leader. It's great if you do become a church leader, but we shouldn't live with a goal, my life will be successful once I become a leader in church. One day when you're on your deathbed, I don't think we should be saying, God, did I lead in your church or not? Yes, God, was I obedient to what you called me to? That's a slightly different question. But I think the goal should be is, have I been godlike, not godlike, godly in my action? Do the people around me, are they saying he was such a great leader in the church? Or are they saying he was, or she was such a godly example? So I want to encourage us, let's not live because we're trying to find position. Let's live because we're trying to find ways to live in actions that are pleasing to God, to be godly. The goal of our life should be godliness, not leadership. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, we read a parallel passage. This is a trustworthy saying, if anyone aspires to be a church leader, he desires an honorable position. So a church leader must be a man whose life is above reproach. He must be faithful to his wife. He must exercise self-control, live wisely and have a good reputation. He must enjoy having guests in his home and he must, not be, able, he must be able to teach. He must not be a heavy drinker or be violent. He must be gentle, not quarrelsome, and not love money. He must manage his own family well, having children who respect and obey him. For if a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? 
I read this a, a while ago. I was sharing something similar to this to this group of pastors that we're working with in the Malupo area. And I was shared this passage with them. And the one lady was very upset with me. I think Yakub was still there that time. I don't know if he remembers this moment. She was super upset. She said, am I saying that she can't be in church leadership because her children are rebellious? I said to her, no, I'm not saying that at all. But I believe Scripture is saying that. And then she wanted to fight with me. And the other day we worked through some of these things with many of our pastors at a pastor summit again. And the one guy was being upset. And I, I just stopped. I said, I did not draw up this list. I did not decide what the actions are pleasing to our God. God decided that. And so I want us to, this morning, this evening, I want us to think a little bit through this idea of how are we going to train ourselves toward godliness? What are some things that we can perhaps do that will help us grow in godliness? I would love for us to be a church, whether this time next year we are 5,500 or 50,000. I would love us to be a church where we can say, I have grown in godliness. Yes, I've grown in power, I've grown in grace, I've grown in knowledge of the truth, I've grown in ministry, I've grown in the ability to lead people, I've grown in all of those things, but I've grown in godliness. I reflect God more. I'm more pleasing in my actions now to God than I was previously. And so here are a, a couple of tips. We're wanting to go to gym. I'm going to use this as an analogy because Scripture says we must train ourselves towards godliness. And so let's spoke to some people who do physical exercise, do training, got some tips from them. So what are the first things? What are the things we do if we want to train ourselves towards something? If you tomorrow were to wake up and say, I'm going to run next year's comrades. You're not just going to wake up on the morning of the comrades and go and run 89 kilometers or whatever it is. You will probably die. I lie, you won't die, you won't even be allowed in. Because you need to run qualifying marathons, you need to show them that you are likely to complete this thing. If you want to go and cycle the 94.7, I don't think you have to qualify for that. But if you just never cycle, you wake up, hey, this weekend I'm going to go and cycle 94.7. Guess what, you might not die, but you're going to get close. You're going to feel like you're going to die. The next morning you're going to wake up dead, to excuse the pun. But if you say beforehand, I want to prepare myself, I want to train myself towards something, what would that typically look like? Well, step one is you're going to get yourself a good coach. You're going to get someone who understands what does it take to be able to achieve your goal. What does the goal look like? What are some of the things that I'm going to have to incorporate in my life? Somebody who understands this road, this journey that I need to go on. I've got good news for you. You already have the best coach ever. Watch what Paul writes to Titus here. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all, which is amazing. God's grace brings salvation. But it doesn't stop there. Training us, that sounds pretty good. That sounds like something a coach would do. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. In the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Can I just connect good works again to godliness? What is godliness? Godliness is doing the actions that are appropriate to the gods in a Greek environment, sort of Greek um, pluralistic environment, polytheistic environment, but in our environment to the God, to God, doing the actions that are pleasing to Him, and that's what good works would be. So step one, done. You've got your coach. He's appointed already. The grace of God has appeared to coach you in godliness. That's paraphrasing a little bit. He's training you for godliness. God has sent His grace, and that's sort of an, a way of an expression of speaking about the Holy Spirit who's appeared in our lives. God's grace through the power of the Spirit trains us. 
So some of us need to start talking to our trainer, to our coach. What is that conversation going to look like? Step one, get a coach. Okay, done. Second one, if you're going to go for a run, I remember a while ago, I got a, a watch and I was playing with it and I realized it was like one of these running watches. It had this really cool thing called Garmin Coach. I was like, oh, this looks nice. And I played around with it and then I could tell it to work out a training program for me. So I said, I want to be able to run this distance in this time by this date. And the next morning I woke up and I watched like a little vibrating thing. And there was a training program waiting for me. Guess what day one is? Let's see how fit you are. Go and do some tests and the watch measures all of that. That thing gets plugged back into the algorithm and that tells me how I'm going to do tomorrow. But I can't start with the training program until I first figured out where am I already. Romans 12 tells us, because of the privilege and the authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. I've realized just as an aside, not even spiritually, just in life, physically, definitely. Most of us think we're better than we really are. I've never run before. I'm going to go run a 5K somewhere quickly. When is the next park run? I'll meet you there. We're going to go for a run. I'm going to run the 5K in 20 minutes. Easy peasy. It looks so easy. I see this from time to time with golf people. We watch people play golf on TV. This is the easiest thing ever. All you do is you hit this little white ball to a hole 200 meters. How hard can that be? And then after they've swung 17 times and they haven't even touched the white ball, they realize it's not as easy as this looks on TV. It's amazing how when we see other people doing it, we think it's so easy for us to do too. Uh, who here has ever tried golf and was shocked at your inability to play golf? Uh, on my hands, I'm still up there. <laughs> you try and hit that ball, and then eventually you get the club to actually make contact with the ball and it goes like, bloop, bloop. <laughs> you know? And the great thing is you're at the driving range and you've only got a bucket full. Of, you haven't used one, but anyway, you go and pick up the one and put it back. And you can use, I'm laughing because it's true. Nah. You can use that. You don't even need to buy a bucket. You just need one ball. By the time you've hit the one ball far enough that you can't reach it anymore, your practice is done. And then eventually you're able to start hitting it. And then you make contact with the ball. Hey, that's pretty, I can hit the ball. It's actually moving. The coach tells me I must keep my head down. So I keep my head down and I open my eyes and the ball's actually gone this time once I've done swinging. That's pretty cool. And then I look up and I see it and the ball's going like, It's amazing how easy it is for us to overestimate our own ability. And Scripture tells us, don't. Don't think you're better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourself. Measuring yourself by the faith God has given us. So step one, do a fitness test. Here's a great way to do a fitness test. And in our small groups over the next couple of weeks, we're going to work some of I'm going to give us some questions, some ideas to our small group facilitators to help you guys to work through some of these things. Step one is take Titus and take Timothy. Take a highlighter or a piece of paper and write down, identify what are the things that are considered godly. What are the things that a church leader should do? What are these things that I should be aspiring towards, growing towards? There are about 15 in total across those two passages. Both, most of them overlap. And then you take those 15 or so, depending on which translation exactly you use, but it's going to be around about 15. I'm going to score myself on each one of those. Let's highlight one here. Do not love money. Ooh, out of 10, if I'm totally honest, I need to make a job decision. I'm finishing my degree. I need to go to work. And I've got two or three options. God has been really good to me. But it's actually really easy for me to make the decision around which job I'm taking. It's the guy who's paying me the most. Oh, that's a red light right there. Do I serve God or do I serve mammon? Who do I love more? Is my decision motivated by money, by finance? Or is my motiv decision motivated by faith? So score myself. How do I think I do in a love of money? How easy is it for me to give? Is my question, God, how much can I give? Or is my question, how little can I give? If I walk into a situation and God says, give a hundred rand towards the children's church outreach, am I, God, can we make it 80? Maybe 70. 
50 sounds good. Or is it God? How about 120? 150 sounds even better. Is it how little can I give or how much can I give? Do I love money? Just one example there. So I'm scoring myself out of 10. The best thing about this is you guys are all young. You were in school recently. Some of you still at varsity. I always thought that's the most useless thing ever when you write a test, like a little class test or whatever, and then the teacher says, okay, now mark it yourself. It's so useless. I'm going to give myself full marks, obviously. And you can do that if you're dishonest. And in this environment, all that's going to happen is you're just going to be lying to yourself. It's between you and God. So the idea isn't to score yourself as harshly as you possibly can. It's to score yourself as honestly as you possibly can. With an understanding that it's not about judgment, it's not about passing and about failing. It's simply saying, God, I want to grow and I need to figure out what I need to grow in. So step one is to take all of these things and to do some self-evaluation. Step two is to ask some people around you that same question. Most of you don't have spouses yet. You can't ask your spouse. Ask your small group. Ask your friends. Say, guys, on these 10 or 15 or whatever things, how would you rate me, comment, whatever, how you think I'm doing on each of these? And here's the important part. Whatever their response is, don't get angry. The worst thing that you can do is if you go to someone and you say, man, how, how do, you, do you think I love money? I don't know why I'm zooming into that one. Find someone else. Do you think I'm arrogant? Yeah, sometimes you're a bit No, I'm never arrogant. <laughs> the moment you start correcting them, you've missed the whole point. You see, our, our natural nature is to want to get defensive. A better way to approach that is when they say, oh, I think you're a little bit arrogant sometimes. And you're like, oh, ouch, that hurts. But thank you for being honest. Can you help me to see why you say I'm arrogant? Help me to see through your eyes what you see when you look at me. Because obviously when I look at myself, I just see the best. So I'm not asking you to compare me to am I more arrogant than so-and-so or than so-and-so, just in the light of Christ. If you want to, I'm more arrogant than Christ. There we go. No one else. My only comparison is Christ. And then don't get defensive. Don't get angry on their, with their answer. It's amazing how often we see this in relational counsel. People ask someone how they experience them and they get angry with the answer. Isn't that missing the whole point? Help me to see what I cannot see for myself. I, I shared this morning... Sort of this was just one of those moments in my life that's always stuck with me. I remember when I was still lecturing at Varsity, we had a, quite a large group of students, about 2,000-odd students in our subject, and we were three or four lecturers across the field. So I probably, and I had some of the bigger classes, I had about five or six, five or 600 students in my classes that were actually attending the classes on a weekly basis. And then a whole bunch, obviously, they don't attend. And then at the end of every semester... They each get a little form. And on the one side, someone stuck stuff to this paper. On the one side of the form, there's a space where they evaluate the module, the textbook, the course content, what, 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 what did we learn, some stuff, scores out of fives or whatever, and some comments around then. And then you flip over the page, and there's the fun part, evaluate the lecturer. This lecture used... Engaging teaching methods, can't remember the exact words, something along those times. Scale, highly agree, highly disagree. Pick one on a scale of one to five. And then they all get handed in. If I remember correctly, you even left the class. Yes, we did that. We left the class and we switched and a different lecturer would come in and hand out the papers, collect the papers, send them down to some center for continuous educational development or something along those lines. And a couple of weeks later, I would get in my pigeonhole and my boss in their pigeonhole a little envelope with a summary of five or six hundred students' evaluations of me. And obviously the course content, I mean, that's easy to read. They like this chapter, they don't like that chapter. The textbook works, the textbook doesn't work. Flip it over and then there's a bunch. All of the statistics and the scores as they scored me on every one of those facets. And then every comment written by everyone. 
just as an aside, first-year university students, apart from, the fact that, that most, apart from the fact that most of them cannot spell, can be ruthless. And you get that piece of paper, and my boss gets it too, and I'm like, oh, shucks, I'm going to get fired. But there's something in that if we're willing to say, I don't agree with them, but that's not the point. If there are three or four students who say the same thing, there's probably some truth in it. And I can say they're so wrong, they don't understand me, they don't get my heart or whatever, that's missing the point completely. Because they don't see my heart, they see my actions. So we need to learn to be willing to ask so that we can grow and so that we can change. So ask friends, ask colleagues, score yourself and get somebody else. So step one, we've got a coach. Step number two is we've done a fitness test. We've done these 15 things and we can say, must not be violent. I don't think I'm violent. No one around me thinks I'm violent. My tongue isn't violent. I'm, I'm not perfect, but that's probably not the one that needs to train the most right now. But I, what else is here? Mm. A heavy drinker. I don't think I'm a heavy drinker. I maybe have a couple of beers when I go out. Oh, well, my friends think I'm a heavy drinker. Here's a problem. Because how are we going to work at that? That's the next step. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away. But we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Can I just quickly come back to Eusebia, doing the right actions that are pleasing to God. Paul is talking about godliness here. He's saying, I'm training my body. My body must do what it should. My body must do the actions that are pleasing to God. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. And so once we've developed a training program, once we've done that fitness test, the next thing we need to do is develop a training program. And this is not generic. See, if I go to a golf coach, the training program he's going to give me is going to look different to when you go to a golf coach. If I go to a cycling coach, I'm going to get a different training program to what you're going to get from a cycling Because our body shapes are different, our diets are different, the goal perhaps we're working towards is different, the things that need to grow is different. It's not just a generic, everyone just follow this training program. So we need to work out a training program with the Holy Spirit. And in small groups over the next couple of weeks, we're going to take a bit of time and help one another develop what are some of the things we can do to help ourselves grow in these areas? So step one is going to be the fitness test. Step two is how are we going to grow together? How are we going to help one another to grow? Second Peter, he encourages the churches and he says, In view of all of this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with patient endurance and patient endurance with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for everyone. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then kind of this verse, which if I had typics, I would like to typics it out, but I don't, and I can't typics out Scripture. But those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. Ouch. That's a hard word. If I'm not growing in these areas, the Bible calls me short-sighted and blind. Short-sighted and blind is definitely not something that I want to be. Mads days at Convergence, she gave this great example. She says she's still looking for the fitness trainer who she can go to and get the fitness program, and they do all the work and she gets all the benefits. That would be a pretty cool fitness program. I'm just going to sit, lie there on the couch and watch my Netflix or whatever, and you're going to exercise and I'm going to get healthy. That would be really cool, except it doesn't work that way. And so in, in my life, personally for me, and I've seen in many others, you know where training programs fall flat? Is when they become hard work. 
It's fun. It's nice figuring out the training program, the study program, whatever it is. It's great drawing up the pretty calendar. This is one. I'm going to study these chapters this day. and then It's got it all figured out. That's the easy part. The hard part is tomorrow when I'm tired and I really don't want to. And it's 6 o'clock in the morning and let me just roll over a bit and sleep a little bit more. Ah, it's 10 at night. I'm tired. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop here. And obviously time and space to manage our time well, but there's sometimes we just need to press through. And all of us academically, we get that. We've seen that in physical training programs as well. We need to train hard. We're not going to be able to run the comrades if we're not willing to wake up at 5 o'clock on a Saturday to go for a long run. As much as I want to run the training, I run the comrades, if I'm not willing to put in the work, I'm not going to get the win. We need to learn and be willing to work at it. Something that I found that helps us with working at it is get a good gym buddy. I learned this even when I was still at school, way before you guys were born, as you so beautifully told me earlier. And going to wake up at 6 o'clock or whatever, or half past 5, because we need to go for a run. And you know, it's one of those things, wake up, it's a little bit cold, it's windy. Um, I'm just going to just roll over. You know, scripture says, as a door turns on its hinges, so a lazy man turns in his bed. Anyway, Proverbs is beautiful. <laughs> and it kind of, sometimes it's easier just to... But you know what changes that? If I wake up at half past five and my alarm goes off and I know my friend is going to be waiting for me at the street corner in ten minutes, then it's a heck of a lot harder just to roll over and skip the training session. It is so different when there's somebody there encouraging me. The same way, kind of, if you're in gym and you're kind of doing bench presses or whatever, you don't want the gym buddy who's telling there, no, you, just, you can't do another, another one. Never. Stop, no, leave it. You're done. You're finished. You're really useless at this. It's not the gym buddy you want. You want the gym buddy who's like holding and you kind of, you're like, and you, come on, come on. One more rep. You can do it. Come, just one more. We're almost there. Come, come, let's just put on a, one, more, one more little weight. You, you can do this. I don't know if I know you can do this. Come on, you've got this in you. You're able to do this. Those are the gym buddies we want. That's what we want to be to one another in small group amongst other places. Come on, you can do this. At the same time, we want somebody kind of, when you're doing this bench press and you've got kind of, those of you who are not gymming type of people, bench be lying on your back and I'm not a gymming type of person anymore. I was many years ago. But you've got this heavy bar with weights on each side, and you're like pushing it above your chest. And normally it's a little bit heavier than it's probably healthy. And if you drop that, you're in trouble. And so what you do is you've got a gym buddy, you've got a spotter, and he's almost standing there with his hands under it, and he's encouraging you, come on, you can do one more. But at the same time, if the thing starts falling in your neck, he's going to catch it. He's going to make sure you're okay. So we want gym buddies who can come alongside us. We want gym buddies who can pull you aside, tap you on the shoulder and say, listen, you're just being a little bit aggressive right now. You said that this violence thing type of thing, we're going to work at that just, just in a loving, calm way. Say, just, slow down, just step back. Because we're training ourselves toward godliness. We're helping, I'm there because I want the best for you. I don't want this thing because I know if this, if this weight falls on your neck, it's probably going to kill you. So I'm going to help not do that. We need gym buddies in our lives. We need people that we can work with. Second Timothy, Yaku spoke last week about fleeing youthful passions, running from them, getting out of the building. We've got a lion that walks in here every Sunday, but that's like a fake lion. Imagine if we were sitting here on a Sunday morning with all the kids and King Judah's song starts playing and the kids are looking around and it's actually a real lion this week coming in. And he's a little bit hungry. I wonder how many of us are just going to sit here and say, oh, that's a pretty lion walking into church. Oh, maybe I should stroke him a little bit. He opens his mouth and he starts growling and he says, no, down, down, take it. Uh, come, kitty, kitty. Or maybe we're too comfortable with lions. There's like a black mamba that sails in here. We go, oh, look at the little pretty snakey. Let me shake. Let me scratch his back. You know, copy crap, come snakey. No, but we're going to run out these doors. We're going to find a window to get out. 
We're going to do everything in our power to remove ourselves. That's what fleeing is. Scripture says, flee youthful lusts. And Yaku spoke about that last week, and I don't want to spend too much time around that. But then he carries on to the B part of the verse. He says, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. If I can summarize that a little bit, just being a little bit naughty for this evening, pursue godliness with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Do it together. Do it in groups. Do it with friends. Do it with people who have the same heart and you have your best interest at heart. You know, you can say if you're struggling with, you know, anger issues, go to a small group and say to someone, I want you to try and make me as angry as you can. <laughs> I'm going to train myself to be gentle. If I slap you, I'll say sorry afterwards. <laughs> Not quite being serious, but have people who can walk this road with you, who can invest and encourage into your life. And then, this is the other thing why sometimes our training programs fall flat. Is we have to pay the member's fee. Maybe you've got discovery or momentum or something and you've got some discount. But 2 Timothy tells us, yes, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's one of those passages I don't like. I want to tip this out. And so I went and looked at all of the other translations. And I've got really bad news for us. They all say exactly the same thing. And the message even puts it like this. The message says, anyone who wants to live all out for Christ is in for a lot of trouble. There's no getting around it. People are going to look at you and say, you're just being weird. You're being difficult. You're saying, hey, guys, I'm training myself toward godliness. So when you, as my friends, I love you guys dearly, I care for you. But when you go out on Friday night and do what we always do on Friday night, I'm not going to join you. As a matter of fact, I'll be, it's a bri. I'm going to join you guys for the bri a little bit. But when the meet's done, if it's like before 2 o'clock in the morning, you know, it's got no bri. In the meet's done, I'm going to leave because you guys are going to open the cooler boxes. And Scripture says I must not be a heavy drinker. And I know in that environment, I don't trust myself. If you want to be a heavy drinker, that's fine. You're not following Jesus, but I can't trust myself in that environment. And they're going to look at you, and you will suffer persecution. They're going to call you names and all sorts of stupid things just because you're actually trying to follow Christ. Be aware of that. Don't be intimidated by it. Don't be put off by it. Just say, hey, I'm paying, my membership fees are paid up suffering persecution and God is in this because I want to please Him more than I want to please my friends. I want to do the works that are appropriate and are pleasing to God, not to please the works that are pleasing to my friends. Yes, I want to reach them and trust me, you will minister to them far more powerfully when you're not being drunk with them. Sometimes we think, no, I'm going to go out with them and I'm going to do what they do, I'm going to get drunk with them and then I'm going to minister to them. No, you're going to throw your testimony out the window. Your ministry to them is far more powerful when they can see you the real deal. Keep loving them. Still hang around with them. But have well-defined, clear boundaries. Saying, when you guys do that, I'm just going to politely remove myself. It's not that I don't like you guys. It's just I can't trust myself there. I want to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. So a couple of things for us to grow in godliness. Firstly, we need to realize Scripture says we should do this. It's not just a nice idea, it's a scriptural instruction that we must train ourselves toward godliness. And I know many of us here are quite fit, we're active, we like exercising, and maybe I can just jump back again to 1 Timothy 6, which said, physical training is good. So do it, get fit, go for your run tomorrow morning, all of those things are important. But training for godliness is much better. Be more committed to your training for godliness than to your training for physical. Don't be uncommitted to your physical, but be more committed to your godliness. Get a good coach. Do some fitness tests. Develop a training program. Commit to the program. Work at it. Do their work. Find some gym buddies. And then pay the member's fee. I think if we embrace those as a starting point, we're going to find ourselves one month, three months, six months down the line having grown in godliness. 
embracing a little bit of this fruit of our salvation, that stuff that really matters in our lives. I also believe that when that is there and we step out and we pray with people and we witness to people and we testify to people, we're going to be stronger witnesses, not because our words are better or more rounded, but because there's more of a conviction in what we are saying. And there's more of a testimony in how we are living our lives. You see, too often, and I'm going to close with this, too often in church we see people who say the right thing, do the right thing, seem exceedingly gifted. You know what I've learned is they're not very good at drawing people to Christ. As a matter of fact, they start at the beginning because people come for the giftedness and then they look a little bit behind the giftedness and then they become offenders to Christ because then it's hypocrites. Then people say, yeah, I know those church people. How many of us know somebody who won't go to church because somebody in a faith leadership position represented Christ badly to them? Any of us met people like that? How many of us were there ourselves for a while? I'm not going to church because that person, those people, they were hypocrites. And we think, but they're so gifted, they're so great. But there's a time when we look beyond the giftedness and we realize, I don't want to serve that God. If that's the God they're serving, if they're reflecting the God they're serving, I don't want to serve that God. I'm not saying don't be gifted. I'm not saying don't learn all of those things. But there has to be a strong undercurrent, an underbelly of good, healthy Christian character, which is called godliness. Can we stand together this evening? I would love to pray with us all. Jesus, you are so good, Lord. And Lord, tonight I want to thank you that we can stand here by grace, Lord, because your grace has appeared to us to save us. And so thank you for that, Jesus. Thank you for the grace of salvation, Lord. Thank you. And God, even as we're here this evening, we understand that you're calling us to godliness, Lord God. And none of us are perfect, and none of us will probably ever be perfect. But we want to just this evening again, just purpose in our hearts to grow towards godliness, Lord. Maybe if that's you, I just want to give you a moment. If you want to say something along those lines to Jesus, don't you just want to respond to Him? Just in your words, in your way. Just bring your commitment to grow in godliness before Him. To train yourself toward, to be godly. So, Lord, as we bring our lives to you, Lord, God, as we're honest about so many of the failures in our lives, Lord, I thank you that you're not intimidated by them. You're not put off by them, God. You're not pushed away from them. On the contrary, you're drawn to them because you want to heal them, Lord. You want to restore them. You want to make them whole, God. And so in Jesus' name, Lord, we, we ask for grace to train us in godliness, Lord. To renounce earthly pleasures and lusts. To train us to embrace pure and blameless lives. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you come and that you do that, Lord. God, I pray that in the next weeks and months and years, Lord, as we think about, speak about godliness in our lives, Lord, that it will always be rooted in a place of devotion, Lord. It will always be because we love you, Lord. Lord, that you would spare us from just dead religion and empty works, Lord. We won't just do things because we want to tick the boxes and they seem right, but we want to do them because we love you. And this is what's pleasing to you, and so we want to do them because we love you, Lord. Pray for grace, Lord, that we may continue to grow in godliness. In Jesus' name, Lord. If you need prayer this evening, you're welcome to step forward. Maybe there's a specific element that as I was speaking about, the Holy Spirit just kind of gripped your heart about it. And you just want to bring that into the light. I want to pray with you. We trust God to bring healing there.
maybe just this whole idea of godliness. You are just, um, God's just drawing you in and you just want someone to pray and just agree with you, love to pray with you. You can come forward too. Or maybe there's something just going on in your life that you walked in with a need, with a hope, with a desire, with a fear, with a dream. And you just want someone to pray with you about that. Maybe there's an opportunity before you and you just want to bring it before the Lord. Whatever it may be, we would love to pray with you. If you need to go, you're obviously more than welcome to go. There's coffee and tea outside. The band's going to continue just to lead us in worship. If you want to just spend time in the Lord's presence, just be washed by Him, you're welcome obviously to do that too. God bless you. Have an absolutely incredible week further. May His face shine upon you every possible way. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Christian Church. We believe that you enjoyed your time with us, establishing God's kingdom and His glory in your life. For more info, call us on 12 362 1363. Email us, Pretoria at Shofa Online.org. Browse our website, www.shofaonline.org, or like us on Facebook.com forward slash Pretoria.